I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I am your host, Bua, and I am here with your other host, Lizzie Daston. And today, it is a lot of episodes deep into this podcast. It's going just unbelievably well. And we are in our 96th episode. Yeah, 96th episode. And uh, we're talking about the culture wars. And Lizzie brought this up as a topic. Lizzie brings up, just so everybody out there knows, Lizzie is the pioneer of not only coming up with topics, but coming up with the, the writing for these shows. Like I was reading it to my mom, like rock and roll Rembrandt and fakes and forgeries and <laughs> the three worst artists ever. And then there's a synops, synopsis after, like a, like a paragraph. I don't write those paragraphs. I'm a good writer, but Lizzie is a, I feel like you're a, you're, you write very clean, clear, lucid, and you also come up with, well, we come up sometimes collectively with the titles, but I feel like your titles are becoming less and less corny. <laughs> no, seriously, because they're were, they were like, what? Like at first, they were like, eh, and we know. But now, but they're really good, uh, really good information as to what these episodes are about. So she came up with, um, I came up with one episode today because we do usually two a day, and she came up with, uh, Culture war. So why don't you talk about that? Well, thank you, first of all, for that roundabout compliment. Sure. I'm not going to be complimenting (laughs) you soon. It's going to get ugly. But I I feel like one deposit, uh, you know, therapists always tell you, like, you know, marriage counselors, one positive. Oh, sure. The sandwich. Yeah. And then hit him with the negative. So (laughs) So I'm going to remind you by the end of this episode (laughs) to say something nice because we're talking about photography. Yeah. And this is one of... My favorite genres, especially to discuss with you, because I am so supportive of photographic histories and you are less so. But I do think that we both have a lot of... You've changed me a little bit. Oh, that makes me feel really good. No, you have. But your dialogue has changed me. It's really interesting. I wasn't open to, you know, to certain aspects of it and now I'm more so. And you know that I, you know, going to high school of LaGuardia and, and art center. And I took photography classes. I did the oatmeal box camera obscura thing and, and actually studied with like some serious photography teachers. So I have a respect for it, but I, I just don't consider it on the level of painting, but go ahead, please. Okay. So the culture wars, one of my favorite eras to teach, it's really just so rich with complexity and the work is really fantastic. And, you know, my favorite way to really introduce art is by introducing historical context. And there is such a synergy between the work that was made in the late 80s under the umbrella of the culture wars and the historical context. So I'm just super excited. It's really juicy stuff. (laughs) So before we launch into the two major artists whose work became these rallying cries of controversy, we have to talk about what was happening in the 80s. So in the beginning of the 80s, the economy wasn't doing great. The military wasn't doing great. We were afraid of the looming threat of the Soviet Union. And so funding for the arts was not the priority. Yeah, it was Star Wars. You know what I mean? It was like these initiatives that were completely bizarre. I mean... And because two of these artists are from New York City, New York was a was a, a really uh, a terrible place. It was a forgotten, dilapidated city of 
you know, people who were destitute and homeless. Mm-hmm. It was it was rough, and that was because of Reaganomics trickle down theory. Never trickled down. The poor got poorer, and there was the beginning of the extinction of the middle class. Right, but then at the end of the '80s, things are starting to get better, and so now we can shift our focus from these large, huge, terrifying things, uh, systems to the arts. And that's what happened. And so there was such a scrutiny that was focused in on how the government was funding the arts. And I think that it happened so drastically because of the change from the beginning of the 80s to the end. So the NEA is the National Endowment for the Arts, and it's a government-funded agency. And at the time, Reagan was president, and we would think that he would be supportive of the arts because he was an actor, an artist. Not a good actor. <laughs> so maybe ter- that's he was, why he wasn't supportive. He was terrible. <laughs> he was a terrible actor. He had, inc- he had incredible hair. <laughs> Reagan had one of the greatest heads of hair ever, but he was a he was a really B level actor. And a B level president, I would and say. And an A level head of hair. <laughs> Good sandwich effect. So that was the compliment. I'll give the <laughs> negative, and then we'll circle back to you. So the climate of the time was so incredibly conservative with regards to the arts. And at this point, we have the AIDS epidemic and total fear and devastation surrounding this issue, but also an increased uh, sense of awareness. And these projects who were maybe a little more provocative, and we're specifically talking about the work of Andrea Serrano and Robert, Robert Maplethorpe, they received NEA grants. And Maplethorpe produced work, a whole variety, and we'll talk about that, but specifically his work that was illustrating S&M and homoerotic themes were seen as just deplorable. That was actually a word that was used in a court trial. And then Serrano was producing work that was seen as spiritually blasphemous. Mm -hmm. And because of this climate... And because of just the tenor of the times, they became these bete noirs for the conservative right. And this one senator, Jesse Helms, he was so negative about these people that he was just railing against them and was supporting that the government defund the NEA, which is interesting because this is happening again with Trump. But I will end my little current rant and go back to the 80s. Yeah, so... Uh, Jesse Helms is very conservative, obviously, and he seems just like, you know, the, the whole problem with that is that the arts in general, this is, this is systemic even today. We don't have arts in schools. Uh, we don't have enough extracurricular arts programs. This is, this is going on in the eighties and all of a sudden they, they're taking, you know, endowments away because you're saying that. We don't approve of this art that's being put out there. Therefore, we don't approve of the monies. Now, let's really think about that. First of all, uh, Helms calls Serrano uh, a terrible artist and a jerk. He doesn't even know him, right? <laughs> right? Serrano seems like a really cool like New Yorker, like really down-to-earth cool guy. I'm not a fan of Piss Christ, as you know, his most recognizable work. I'm not a fan of it, but the guy seems like he's a smart, funny likable guy and certainly not a jerk. The only jerk was Helms. He was a complete moron. I mean, he, he himself is deplorable. You know, for, he's, look, we, are we going to go down that path? I mean, I want to, I don't want to go too far down that path. But the point is, there's an irony there, right? Because what do they give Serrano? They give him $15,000 and only 5000 of those dollars was from the NEA. 
The other was from another scholarship, right? So this guy who's made, who that, that, by the way, blew his career up. The more they said that his work is deplorable and that he's a jerk, the more fame he got, the more people were like, oh, wait, what, who? What's going on? What's Piss Christ about? Next thing you know, the guy's selling for millions of dollars and invariably winds up, winds up paying the IRS millions of dollars in taxes. So ultimately, he makes the, in, in an incredible, you know, irony, he's making our government millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they were complaining about the fact that they were giving him 15000 which was really 5000 directly from the NEA. It is incredibly ironic, and he really became a scapegoat for the conservative lens. And let's talk about Piss Christ. We did discuss it in a much, much earlier podcast, yep. I think one of our first 15, so just to quickly sure. re-outline what it is. So Serrano, in all of his work from the beginning, and he continues to work today, he loves to engage in this dialectic of extremes. One extreme is the pleasure and the intrigue and the mystery and the ambiguity that a viewer feels when first looking at the work. And then the other extreme is the revulsion once we discover what the materials are. And so there's that duality of seduction and abjection that Serrano finds really interesting, which is something that the Surrealists explored decades prior. Mm -hmm. So there is a precedent to this work. However, the subject matter in this case was seen as too provocative and really right. inappropriate. So what the photograph is, it was taken in the late 80s, 1987, and we see a crucifix of Christ, a little sculpture crucifix, submerged in some kind of material. We don't know what it is. Mm. I mean, now we do because we told you that it's called Piss Christ. But if you didn't know the title, you mm. would just think that maybe it's something atmospheric. It doesn't mm. really look like the color of urine. To me, it looks almost like flames or just something that is moody, evocative, and environmental. And then once you find out that the substance is urine... And, and Andre Serrano's own urine. Right, his, his own, own urine. His own yeah, bodily fluids. Yeah, then it colors the reading, and then it, it seems like he is literally peeing on religion, which is where the people who are very critical of this work, where they often enter into the controversy. Now... We know that Serrano wanted us to have this conversation. If he didn't, he would have called it untitled. Sure. The fact that he is naming it Piss Christ right. tells us everything, that he wants this to be propulsive in, in an inroad into a multitude of dialogues. And for him, he said he was shocked that people were... Mm were upset by this, which I also think is ridiculous. That's of course BS, he knew. Yeah. Of course. Of course. But he said that he was trying to personalize the experience of religion, the experience with Christ, and nothing is more personal than his own liquid, a byproduct of his body. And he said, well, liquids are all throughout the Bible. We have blood and tears and wine and water. And so this is just my way of contributing to that dialogue. But... I think that we need to take sometimes what artists say with a grain of salt. And he knew that this was going to be controversial. A hundred percent he knew. Yeah, we have to take it with a grain of salt or a droplet of urine. <laughs> so, we, you know, I think that, uh, you know, he himself is a devout Christian, or at least he couches himself as that in order to really justify his agenda, which is really opening the eyes to the American public about what we can and cannot do. And I, although... I'm not a fan of the statue of Christ being submerged in urine. 
I'm way more not a fan of people telling you that you can't make art. I don't care what it is, guys. Like, you know, look, I, there's artists out there that, that I don't love, but I would never, you know, object to art that is being funded. And people have a vision, and certainly Serrano did. Let's, and let's really go back into to his work because he's a photographer, and he's a good photographer. You know, he did a lot of really interesting, cool imagery, a lot of work that had a sense of religiosity. He did a lot of celebrity work, a lot of, you know, depicting homeless people and in religious uh, compositions. But more than a photographer, he's an artist. He's an artist who has ideas, philosophies. And he was really the perf perfect person to be in the perfect storm at the perfect time and the perfect moment you know you talk about AIDS was just exploding then and you know so was crack and so was uh, it was really rough times and Serrano who's who is a New Yorker you know came from that world you know what I mean so what a better person to stir up the pot and put himself there I don't know if he knew you know oftentimes when things are that revolutionary it's because you just kind of there's a window that's open and you walk through it. And you don't even know what's going to happen. You're like, well, I just walked through that window at that perfect time in the perfect moment in history and I became the guy, right? So he became the scapegoat, but then he became the, you know, the, the darling of, of the world. And when he had his show in Avignon in France, you know, the, the bishop were the, you know, led, a, led a movement to just hate on him. You know, they did. They hated on him. They destroyed the work, you know, and... He went through a lot of adversity, but I think at the end of the day, what a name it made for him in the fine art world. Oh, definitely. And I think that as you were describing the history, you really landed on the crux of this debate, which is governmental intervention in the generation of art and in the funding of art. And so we see that throughout time, and we have seen it before with Diego Rivera's mural the Rockefeller although that was privately funded but still it's an issue of censorship we saw that with Siqueiros and the governmentally funded Tropical America and we will see it again and so this is just another instance of this collision between conservative viewpoints and more liberal ones and it really sparks the question who should get paid to propagate his or her own creativity and who gets to decide that yeah i mean you see it on you saw it in the beginning stages and iterations of instagram as a platform where you would see artists who were very talented putting up paintings of nude nudes you know whether women's genitalia or nipples and and then he you know they would have to cover them because they weren't accepting now it's changed they've become more flexible uh, it's a little bit more ambiguous in terms of what you can do and not do, and I think it's more open, but you know, initially they're controlling it. Now, do they have the right to do that? Sure, it's a private platform that you're basically squatting on, so you're, you know, you're showing up in their gallery, putting your stuff on their walls. I understand that, but we have a lack of reverence for art in general, especially for people who don't have the financial resources to do that. It's, it's really difficult for people to have that exposure, especially then you look at the museum world, and if you have to pay to get into that world too, that's rough. You know, there, there are museums like donation-only Metropolitan Museum in New York City on the East, Upper East Side, but that's rare. You know, most places you do have to pay 
to get into. So it's hard to have access. And so things like the, that's why the National Endowment of the Arts is so important and those kind of things because they actually help artists to be able to create art. Otherwise, it's just rough. Yes, and they also, they open up the range of topics that we get to discuss with other people. We get to identify our own ideas within ourselves. And we need to keep these gates as widely open as possible. And so I think it is critical that the NEA remain funded. But let's talk about another photographic series of his because we have done Piss Christ before. Also, I think it's important to say that he didn't just submerge this one crucifix sculpture into urine. He has a whole series called Immersions, and he will have sculptures of Madonna and Young Christ, but Piss Christ was really the only one that Not received... Madonna like a virgin, but No, Madonna, no, the <laughs> not virgin. the singer, the, right. the original virgin, right, the OG the original virgin. virgin. Got you. <laughs> not like a virgin, but the virgin. Yes, exactly. Okay. The capital T virgin. Gotcha. So my favorite series, it's kind of a... A series not necessarily related, but once we talk about the substance, we can see them intertwined. And one of them, I won't say what it's called, but it's a photograph often with a black or very sparse background, and then you'll see something white and kind of luminous leap from one side of the composition to the other. And so it's this this dialogue of black and white and stasis and movement And it really, I'm trying to think, what was my reaction when I first saw it? It looks elegant and almost swirling in its evocative depiction of form. And then when you find out what it is, it's called ejaculate in trajectory. Mm. So it is a semen emission of the artist, I believe, but it's his ejaculate across some kind of blank surface. But the NEA didn't sponsor that. No, 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 but it's Because I would be very against that sponsorship <laughs> of that disgusting, diabolical work. Thank you, Jesse Hill, Senator from right North now, Carolina. He's a jerk. <laughs> I'm telling you how much of a jerk you are, sir, to be putting your ejaculate onto a canvas. Actually, as a man, though, I think that it's pretty awesome because anything that my body produces is gold. All right, so... <laughs> I'm I'm totally offended, and, and you're all jerks. <laughs> I hope that's exactly what he sounds like. Also, I've never done a Southern accent before, so apologies no, for was, how offensive no, it was. No, that was really good. For a, a Jew, that was amazing. Thank you. Uh, you were speaking to yourself, though. Yes, Yeah. of, of course. Okay, so alongside this project, and let me just say, a lot of people love the Ejaculate series. Often in museums that will show his work or galleries, you will see this work. And I think that it's the most popular series he's done. So alongside Mm. that, he has another one called The Red River Flow. Mm. And I think these are so beautiful. They're really rich with complexity when you look at them. What is it that you're seeing? It looks like these lava spills, something that feels primal and elemental in some really cool way. And then we find out that he photographs feminine hygiene pads and that's what it is that we're looking at and that series has never seen the light of day and isn't it interesting that the product of a female body Mm -hmm. a female flow Mm -hmm. is met with such revulsion and fear and disgust Mm -hmm. and yet the product of a male body Mm -hmm. is often celebrated uh are you are you hinting at conspiracy theory or I mean like the way a that you looked at me, you're like, conspiracy you're theory. like hmm, isn't that <laughs> perhaps if he was a woman, 
it would be way more acceptable. That's an interesting question. You know I, I mean? think because that it's right just now the product. In this time, it, it, it is, it's, it's a sensitive time. I'm not saying he clearly did it a long time ago, but probably not the right time to show artistic menstruation on canvas. Or exactly the right time. People have been doing that since the late 60s, early 70s. Judy Chicago, one of my favorite feminist artists, she has this one work called The Red Flag, and it's her pulling out a bloody tampon from her body. And a Mm. lot of people thought that it was a castration image. Mm. And we just have so little awareness of female systems Mm. that I think that's the most important takeaway from the people's reactions is that we are just grossed out. Right. All right. So let's talk about Robert Maplethorpe. Yes. Robert Maplethorpe, another New Yorker, you know, all these culture clashers are all from New York. Uh, Robert Maplethorpe from Queens, uh, very, very, very talented photographer. Technically, you know, it's you see his photographs of these bodies, and the problem with photography now is that everybody thinks they're a photographer. They have the new iPhone. Everyone gets the eleven. It's game over, right? Everyone's going to be like, "I'm the greatest." Like nobody's <laughs> even great. Did you see the photograph? It's like, but there's a level to. A real, real photographer, you know, Diane Arbus or or uh, Ansel Adams, and I would put Maplethorpe in that category. I mean, he really was a technical photographer. He shot beautiful compositions with beautiful lighting. You know, oftentimes I remember seeing his work, you know, and drawing from it. Like, you know, you see these beautiful black male bodies inside of a circle with light, and it was just like, wow, this is so incredible. And besides his, you know, he had several topics, right? Very classical topics, not unlike the classical painters of yesteryear. Portraits, did a ton of portraits, which was gorgeous. Uh, A lot of celebrity portraits as well. Uh, Figurative stuff, right? A lot of figures in in terms of the human nude, very classical uh, theme as well. And then it seemed like a lot of uh, flowers, a lot of still lifes which were really beautiful. He didn't do the still lifes that were dying. He did very fresh, living still lifes. So his work is uh, is very alive and very beautiful. He was, seemed like he was obsessed with beauty and wasn't really in the world of color. He kind of lived in that monochromatic world for the most part. He did very powerful, saturated darks and lights and they almost had that like silver point feeling to them where they all the photographs almost glowed and he he was uh he was a very you know talented complex guy who was very sure of himself and was was just fantastic and then wound up doing like obviously incredibly controversial stuff for the time much like another artist, uh, Joel Peter Wicken, who you know that I love his photographs as well. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up the compositional purity or thoughtfulness because that, I think, is true throughout his oeuvre, whether he is photographing a calla lily or the nude body of a black man or the coupling of bodies engaging in some kind of S&M activity. Mm-hmm. You always see that compositional purity. And he actually was trained as a painter. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I had I a feeling you would... 
Right. Just because of the way that he always balances his work, there is something ennobling about his treatment of his subjects. And he came across scrutiny during the culture wars because of not the way that he photographed, but the subject matter that he photographed. And he was exploring the boundaries of his sexuality and what he thought was was something he wanted to experience or experiment with. And this was specifically S&M practice. And there's one self-portrait. I always love when artists do self-portraits. because and he I did think a lot of them. A lot. And yeah. I think you can trace their psychological positioning through the self-portraits. We discussed that with Rembrandt. And the same, I think, is true with Maplethorpe. Although I see his self-portraits more like a Sheila because there's a little bit of that raw sexual mm -hmm. energy that also aligns with sickness. Mm -hmm. And we see that in his last self-portrait where he is holding a, a stick, a walking stick with a skull on it. And that happened very soon uh, or before his death. So his in his self-portraits, my favorite early one is a self-portrait where he's pulling out a bullwhip from his anus. And he's looking back at the camera in a way that doesn't read confrontational, but to me reads confident, like he is finally showing himself and he is exposing his authenticity and his vulnerability in a way that was not recognized. And that was a bold move. It wasn't so long ago at this point that people were jailed for being overt with their homosexuality. It happened to Oscar Wilde in the late yeah. 1800s, and that's terrifying. And so now for the fear of AIDS, that's in the water. Everybody's afraid of it. And for him yeah. to shift that narrative and to celebrate queer culture, yeah. I think was really tremendous. Yeah, he celebrated, you know, it was you know, clearly he himself was a gay man celebrating the gay experience, uh, but also really celebrating the human experience. Whatever, whatever that experience is, it was a human uh, experience and really celebrates the body, you know. So he's, he's celebrating really all aspects of life, you know. He, he was across the board uh, deep diving into the psyche of the figure, you know, and what it means to, to experience it in a sexual way, as a kind of a uh, as a thing, because sometimes when you draw, it's an interesting when you draw the figure. You know, and I, I've taught I've taught figure drawing for twelve years at USC, and it, you kind of become numb to it, right? So there's that aspect, and it's hard to always really love it and and to go like, oh wow, that's you know, because you start seeing it as just a form in front of you. You know, this is a diagonal, and there's an S-curve, and there's a C-curve, and this form is wrapping around, you know what I mean? And you lose the emotional uh, connectivity to the spirit of the figure in the pose. And I don't really feel like he ever did that, but at the same time, he modeled it down like clay, where it was, it was just beautiful regardless. As it was beautiful as an object, it was beautiful as a person. It was beautiful as a sexual experience. You know what I mean? So it was very deep and 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 layered. And I feel like I could, when you say he was a painter, that doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I'm just like, I look at his work. Of course he was a painter because he was composing like a painter. And he was really saw the figure uh, in a different way than a lot of photographers see it by, by allowing us objectively to enjoy it for whatever 
it was. And he also had thick hair. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. Good. Thank you for that yeah. circle back. <laughs> <laughs> he really did. He really had really, really <laughs> thick hair, which was pretty amazing. And, and he, um, so we always associate art historically his SM images mm-hmm. with the experience of men with other men. And it's true, he didn't photograph women and women engaging in SM practice, but he did photograph nude women. Mm-hmm. He he had darling models. So he had sure. favorites that you see again and again. And I think her name was Lisa Lyons, but mm-hmm. she was a bodybuilder and he often photographed her body, which I think is really great because there's this dialectic of masculine qualities and also uh, stereotypically feminine qualities. And again, to go back to surrealism, which is a connection that I'm only making on the fly, that's reminding me of Man Ray's Minotaur, which where you look at it, you see aspects that are masculine, aspects that are feminine. And so that's something that Maplethorpe is re-energizing in this really elegant way. And if I may interject as well, which brings me back to when you talk about uh, one of his models, Lisa, and, and how she feels masculine, you go back all the way to the high Renaissance and you see Michelangelo, who's depicting women as men because he is completely obsessed with the male form and throws, you know, bosoms on the male form as balls of clay, essentially, right? <laughs> and that, that doesn't really feel like a woman, but it feels like what we would now know as a female bodybuilder because he, maybe like Maplethorpe, is obsessed with the male form and feminizes it enough to, to pawn it off as a female but at the end of the day, what is he's really doing the same thing that Michelangelo did, which is I'm so obsessed with the male form, but I'm experiencing and having to put out the female. I'm not saying Maplethorpe had to. Michelangelo had to. Yes, definitely. You know, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> he had to uh, paint or sculpt some of these uh, women, uh, mythological or re- religious women. And Maplethorpe kind of does the same thing. You know what I mean? He really, really, really loves the male body. And that's a, that's great. You know, when I drew, you know, it's amazing when I do draw, like there's such a different experience between drawing a female and a man. You know, there, you you have so much fun sometimes with the female because of the C curves and the S curves and the, the shapes. But then, then again, with the men, you know, you just don't get the geometry with the women. With the men, you get the angles, mm. the hard geometry, you could play with that, like kakunk, kakunk, kakunk. The ang- you know what I mean? The the real staccato kind of powerful lines. With the women, it's much more lyrical, much more beautiful, almost more deep. So it is a different experience drawing a male and female nude. And I feel like sometimes you just you 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 enjoy one or the other. And especially if you're attracted to that, then it's then it's pretty obvious which one you're you know, driven and which one you just have to go to magnetically. Yes. And male bodies definitely occupy the majority of his subjects, but I still think with women, he's really asking us to question modes and conventions of beauty and also modes and conventions of gender. And what are our expectations when we see a nude female form? And conversely, what are our expectations when we see a male body? And I think that these questions and this line of questioning is really prescient because he was doing this in the late 80s. And that's pretty incredible because these are are questions that we're asking ourselves today. So I think both of these artists Mm. are important, not just because of their historical impact, but also in the ways that we can re-examine in our lens of 2019 
And I'll just say the only struggle that I have with Maplethorpe's work is that I think that sometimes he can fetishize the black body. And he was questioned about that during the his lifetime. And he said that he just loved the allegiance between black bodies and bronzes because mm-hmm. he felt like the way that he was trying to depict a body was in line with the way that the Greeks did. And so we have marbles and bronzes. Mm-hmm. And there's such a dichotomy between that white and that black. And so he often would choose models whose pigmentation was pretty extreme uh, in one direction. But I don't know. I think that could be true, but I also think it's true that he's fetishizing. Who cares? He did great work. He did. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, guys. Well, listen, if you want to leave us a comment, please do, whether you're listening on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever, Tell us something, and also uh, tell us who you want us to talk about, because we love talking about art. All right, guys, peace.